Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning to a message I'm calling Resurrection Life, the Crown of the I Am's. When I say the crown of the I Am's, I am referring to the I Am declarations that Jesus made throughout his ministry. One of those declarations is crowned the jewel above all the other I Am declarations. And it's the I Am declaration that Jesus made as he stood with Martha, side by side, facing her brother Lazarus' tomb. We find their exchange of words in John chapter 11, verses 21 through 26. Martha said unto Jesus, Lord, if thou had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to you. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Oh, man. Take those words home with you today. Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. I want you to underscore those three words in your heart this morning. Shall never die. The next time you have to attend the funeral of a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, a family member, I want you to know something. If they put their faith in Christ, Jesus himself said, He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Did he say that? Am I in the word? He said, they shall never die. Obviously, he's not talking about the physical death. We all meet that someday. But he's talking about something that's much larger and beyond the physical realm that we live in. The believer never dies. He goes from life to more life. If the body of Christ would grasp the magnitude of what Jesus told Martha, then condemnation would take a long walk on a short pier. Guilt and shame would lose their runway and fear would pack his bags once and for all and leave. Now, in the tranquility of that moment, I bet you could have heard a pin drop. I believe it would have been so quiet, you could have probably heard your pulse beating. And then Jesus whispered to Martha, Do you believe this? Martha, do you believe what I just got through saying? He that liveth and believeth in me, though he were dead, he shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? We would not be able to embrace the fullness and the goodness and the promises and the ownership of all the other I Am declarations if Jesus was still in the grave and there was no resurrection life. As believers, our hope is in a risen Savior, not in a buried Savior. His name is Jesus. He is not only the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but Jesus is the only Savior of the world. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the Bible says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus. He is the only Savior of the world. What I want you to see through the message today is this, that Jesus' crucifixion 
was our crucifixion. Jesus' death was our death. Jesus' burial was our burial, and Jesus' resurrection life is also our resurrection life. I don't think believers have a hard time seeing in their own mind the images of a bloodied cross, a crucifixion, a death, a burial, and a resurrection and ascension of Jesus. We don't have a hard time seeing that. We've all seen the movies. We've all seen the paintings. We've all seen the pictures. The question becomes, can you see your own crucifixion? Can you see your own death? And can you see your own burial? And can you see your own resurrection life in Christ? The more both of those images become a reality to us, then the more we will walk in resurrection life, the crown of the I Ams. The Apostle Paul was writing one day, and he wrote Galatians. And one of my favorite scriptures in Galatians is chapter 2 and verse 20. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. He loved me and he gave himself for me. Did you notice he didn't say, I was crucified before Christ? Uh uh. I wasn't crucified after Christ. I wasn't even crucified next to Christ. And I wasn't crucified separate from Christ. He said, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. His crucifixion was our crucifixion, even though we did not feel the searing pain of those nails as they hammered through his wrists and his feet. His crucifixion was still ours. Even though we didn't sense the, the crown of thorns that was thundered into his skull, his crucifixion was our crucifixion. Even though we didn't sense the shame and the mockery as our Jesus hung naked on a cross, his crucifixion was still our crucifixion. Even though the spit that would have been running down our Savior into the lacerations and the wounds, even though we didn't feel that pain, his crucifixion was still our crucifixion. And as our Savior hung there, and the blood and the sweat and the tears coming down his face, and no way to wipe his eyes, how tormenting can you get? You ever have something in your eye and you just keep playing with it until you get it out of there? And even sweat alone, but the blood, the sweat, the tears that were coming out of our Savior's face, and no one there to wipe his tears and his blood and his sweat from his eyes. We see an Old Testament prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion and suffering in Psalm chapter 22, verses 14 through 18. When the Holy Spirit was crafting this word in my heart, I found it interesting that he didn't take me into the classic scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He kept me out of those, and I kept going, God, that's where the crucifixion is always at. He said, I want to show you some other places that aren't quite as obvious to people that don't think about going there. Psalm chapter 22, verses 14 through 18. David wrote this psalm. David lived before people were crucified. So David is seeing something in his heart. He's seeing something in his mind. And he's writing as fast as he, the Holy Spirit is giving him the words. He's like, I can't exactly explain what I'm seeing here. But this is what he wrote. He said, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Let's stop here for a second. It was very common in the day to lay the cross, the upright beam on the ground. And they would dig a five, six foot hole for that cross to go down in. And they would tie that beam on you 
or in some cases stake you to that upper beam. And it weighed as much as 100 pounds. So you can see why Jesus had such a hard time carrying that after he had been whipped at the whipping post. And they would take you, and then they would lay you down on the other upright, and then they would nail that beam to the other beam, and then ultimately they would crucify you. That's what it means to drive nails through your hands and your feet. You've been crucified. And then they would take that cross, and they would take ropes, and they would pull it up, and then that cross would thunder down five or six feet into that hole, and all the bones in Jesus were just pulled right out of joint. And that's what David's writing about when he said, all my bones are out of joint. His bones weren't broken because it was prophesied his bones would not be broken. That's why when they came to Jesus to break his legs, they found him dead already because it was already prophesied he would not have broken bones, but his bones were pulled out of joint. He says, my heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. Watch what he says now. They pierce my hands and feet. I told you, David was seeing something that they weren't even doing in his day yet. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and then cast lots for my garment. Just exactly the way the new writers in the New Testament wrote it. Crucifixion was performed publicly in those days, friends. The purpose of crucifixion was twofold. It was not only to punish the criminal, but the purpose of it was to absolutely terrorize and discourage those people that were watching the crucifixion from committing the same crimes. And it was a very, very effective deterrent. Victims after they were crucified were left on display after death as warnings to others who might attempt rebellion. Crucifixion was usually intended to provide a death that was gruesome, humiliating, particularly slow, and painful. And as I was thinking about that, when we go through something that's particularly slow and painful, it's about the only time we use the word excruciating. Otherwise, we don't usually use that word too often. But I want you to take a look at the word excruciating. I want you to see the word next to it as we juxtapose those two words, crucify and excruciating. And I want you to see the common denominator, the root word, cruci. Excrucia, crucified. It means absolute torment. When I gave my heart to Jesus in 1995, I was surfing the radio channel and I ran into Phillips, Craig, and Dean, three pastors who came together and sing wonderfully. I love them. And the song that came out that same year I gave my heart to Jesus was a song called Crucified with Christ. Oh, I bought that album and I played it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Not just because it had a catchy melody and a tune to it. They were singing my story. They were singing my story. It was like if I was to write an autobiography, I couldn't have started off with better words than what they wrote in that song. When I look back at what I thought was living, I'm amazed at the price I chose to pay. And to think I ignored what really mattered because I thought the sacrifice would be too great. But when I finally reached the point of giving in, I found his cross was calling even then. And even though it took dying to survive, I've never felt so much alive for I am crucified with Christ. 
And yet I live, not I, but Christ that lives within me. His cross will never ask for more than I can give, for it's not my strength, but his. There's no greater sacrifice, for I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live. Oh, that was my song. Oh, did you hear how it started? When I look back at what I thought was living, I'm amazed that I chose to live in sin because somehow I thought my life was better than it would be if I came to God. There was a time in my life where I finally reached the point of giving in. And when it was that moment that I found his cross was still calling for me. It was saying, come on, son, come on, son. And I got on my knees and I said, yes, I'll receive you, Jesus. I'll receive the cross. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. You see, friends, I want to tell you something. The reason I kept saying no to Jesus is because somebody painted a bad picture of my daddy. Somebody painted a bad picture. I'll tell you who did that. Religion did that. I grew up in a church that was so legalistic. Now, let me say something here. I'm very thankful that I grew up in church. I'm going to tell you something. If the doors were open, my mother had us in church until I was 15 or 16 and, and kind of went off and did my own thing. I was in church. Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings, and Sunday nights, and when, when revivals, I hated that word revival. When revivals came to town, six, seven, eight, ten day revivals, I was in church every single one of those nights thinking about baseball, thinking about football, thinking about different things like that. Never gave my heart to Jesus because the religion had painted such a, a tainted picture of my daddy. It did. When we were growing up, we couldn't go to the theater because that was considered worldly. I don't care if the movie was rated G, and most of the stuff was back then. You couldn't go to the theater because it was considered worldly. They would take that scripture and whip it out, and it says, the Bible says, come out from among them and be separate. Like, what has that got to do with going to the movies? You couldn't wear jewelry. In fact, in the church, you can't even wear a wedding band in the church. You don't know who's married or who's not married unless you know them for a little while. You have to kind of go, by the way, are you married? You don't really know. Because they took other scriptures in First Peter there and took them totally out of context and said, don't let you know, your, your beauty be adorned with gold and jewelry and stuff. Like, oh, please, come on. I'm going to tell you something. We couldn't shake dice. If you had board games that had dice like Monopoly, my mother would make us spinners or buy spinners. So we'd have to click little spinners all the time. We probably still got calluses on our fingers from clicking spinners all the time. Because you know what? Las Vegas uses dice. So you look a lot like Las Vegas. Men were supposed to have short hair. Women were supposed to have long hair. And if it was the opposite, oh, watch out. You know what? You were strongly discouraged from hanging around someone who was a sinner. Oh, they reached all the way back into Psalm chapter 1 where it said, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners. Right there it is, standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, because your way is going to be blessed. Not understanding, we're talking about old covenant, and we're talking about something that's totally out of context. But you know what? The pastor knew more than we did. Mom knew more than we did, so we swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. And so when Jesus was calling me finally 22 years ago, I began to see, oh man. See, I, I said no all that time because somebody painted a bad picture of daddy. Daddy's not like that though, is he? No. You know what religion does? It puts rules above relationship. It puts law above love. It makes daddy seem distant rather than up close and personal. And I want you to know something. My daddy is up close and he's personal. He can't get any closer than living on the inside of you. I mean, no matter where you go, there you are and there he is, you know. 
Everywhere you go, you got him with you. You can't outrun him. If you lag behind, he lags behind. You take a step, he takes a step. You step to the left, he steps to the left. You're right? You can't trick him. He's on the inside of us. But when I came to the revelation that I was crucified with him through grace, once for all, it released me to live resurrection life, the crown of the I am's. You know, I always thought this was kind of weird, that Jesus was crucified once, he died once, for all the Bible says. But then we had that scripture that I had to die daily. I'm thinking, wait a minute now, Jesus died once to give me life, comes and lives inside of me, but I got to die daily. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, the Apostle Paul, when he said, I die daily, he was just simply saying, I remind myself every day I get up, I'm already dead. I'm already dead and alive to God. I'm already dead to this world. I'm already dead to that old man and alive to God. In Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, we find these words. For we know, not we think, not we guess, for we know that our old self was crucified with him. I want you to look at those words. Who were we crucified with? Him. Who's him? Christ. We were crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died, I love these words, has been set free from sin. Oh, friends, if I had confetti, I'd probably just start throwing it all over the room here. We've been set free from sin. We've been set free from sin. Let's grab a hold of those words. Let them fall to the sticky side of your heart and take them home with you. We have been set free from sin. You say, Pastor Mark, that scripture is talking about when we physically die. No, sir. No, ma'am. The context of this scripture is that we died and we were set free from sin the moment that we were crucified with him. That's when we were set free from sin. The moment we were crucified, the moment we were crucified with him. Many do not embrace the truth of this scripture because as humans, we continue to sin from time to time. Shouldn't be what we do, but we continue to do it. So if we continue to sin, then it translates somehow into some of our minds, I must have not been set free from sin, or this scripture must be saying something I don't understand. Because you said, I've been set free from sin, but yet I just sinned. The glorious truth that we have died with Christ, that have been set free from sin, does not mean that you and I will never commit another sin. What this scripture is saying is it's saying I've been set free from, number one, the province of sin, number two, the power of sin, and number three, the penalty of sin. What glorious news. How did this happen? It happened through Jesus' resurrection life, the crown of the I Am's. There are those that will say, and I've heard it said, that this hyper-grace message, they call it, gives people a license to sin. Well, I've got some news for you that has some shock value to it. When God saved you, He did not take away your license to sin. But He gave you a new heart. You still have a license, just check your wallet. He did not take away your license, He gave you a new heart. He gave us a new heart so that we wouldn't want to sin. It's not who we are, and we realize that when we blow it, whether it's in a temper tantrum or whatever it may be, we realize when that happens is, that's not who I am. That's really not the real me. The second thing is they kind of make fun of it 
when they call it the hyper-grace gospel. Friends, I've come by today to tell you there is no other gospel than grace. You say, Mark, is that your opinion? No, that's Scripture. There is no other gospel than grace. Let's look at that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 5-8. through 8. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. How did you get into Christ? Through grace. He called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. So what he's saying is, he said, I came along and taught you that it's only by grace that you get saved. I taught you that the only way into Christ is through grace. And then someone has come along and they've undermined the message I gave you. And they've, it's removed you from where you were steadfast. It's removed you from where you were, where I had you when I left. And he said, I'm just amazed because I thought you really got it when I was here. And then he says, that other gospel that they're talking about, he says, which is no gospel at all. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert, then he says, the gospel of Christ. Now, the first time he said that, he said, the grace of Christ, and then now he calls it the gospel of Christ. So in the context, he's saying the grace of Christ and the gospel of Christ are the same thing. They're one and the same. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Man, he's using strong language here. That's a strong thing to say. I've been saved for almost 22 years. I don't believe I've ever said, man, let a curse come upon you. I don't think I've ever said that one time, even to an enemy. The Bible says, pray for them that despitefully use you, persecute you. And I, that's what I've done. I've watched God do some miraculous things doing that. But he is so passionate about the gospel of grace. He is so passionate about the gospel of Christ that if anybody else comes along and preaches any other message, he said, I'm not going to tolerate it. I'd rather have you cursing off the planet, buddy. I'd rather see the ground open up and swallow you up. He said, because I know this is the only gospel there is. It's the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of Christ. I've never said it and I never will that people can live careless and uh, sinful lives. Sinning is wrong. Sinning is stupid. And sinning will hurt you. I don't give anybody a license to sin. But I tell them, you've got a love in heaven and lives in your heart that will keep you from sinning. Sin has a punch to it. You mess with it and it will knock you out. What I'm saying is this. When our Father was saving us, He had to look down the timeline of our own lives. And looking down the timeline, He saw every thought, He saw every word, and He saw every deed. He saw every misstep and every miscue. He saw our motives. God saw our motives. Even when we are tricked by our own motives and we don't realize what we're doing something for, God saw it plain as day. He saw what our motives were. He saw our failures and He saw our sins, past, present, and future, and He still declared us forever forgiven and accepted in the Beloved. Through His acceptance, He placed the punch of our sin on His only beloved Son of God, His name is Jesus. I want you to see through a scripture what the punch of sin that belonged to us did to God's beloved Son, Jesus. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at Him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and His form marred 
beyond human likeness. The King James Version said his visage was marred. And as I was meditating on that scripture yesterday, I had to ask myself a question. How long? How long does a beating have to go on? How many blows do you have to receive? How many punches do you have to receive? How long does it have to go on to make a man look like this? That says he didn't even look human. In fact, I've got a better question for you. Why did he take this punishment? The Bible says he could have called 12 legions of angels. There's 6,000 to a legion. 12 times 6 is 72,000. One angel could have done it all by himself, but the Bible says he could have called 72,000. But no, he continued to take our punch of sin because he knew man could never have resurrection life apart from him taking our punishment. So I asked myself, why did he do this for us? And there were two words that came to my mind. And they come to my mind often at Easter. And they were the words, awesome love. Awesome love. We used to sing a song at our former church called Awesome Love. Blood poured out. Body torn. Rusty nails, crown of thorn. Awesome love. Held you on my tree. Swollen face and thirsty Christ, pounding blows and lonely sighs. Awesome love held you on my tree. Only you are worthy to receive all I can give. Only you are worthy to be the reason that I live. Only you are worthy to be the object of my praise. And with thankful heart, my empty hands I raise. Sin-crushed heart, broken soul, bloodshot eyes make me whole. Awesome love held you on my tree. Awesome love holds me on my knees. I want to tell you something. I fell in love with Jesus when he walked into my heart. I don't care if the whole world hears me say it. I've gladly said I love Jesus. I'm in love with Jesus. I am in love with Jesus. I love him because he first loved me and I experienced that love from him. In Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4 it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We quote this scripture a lot. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. The word smitten literally means the receiving of a death blow from someone. That's what smitten means. Please make note where the death blow came from. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God. Let me say it again. Smitten of God and afflicted. It took an eternal being to snuff out the life of an eternal being. Smitten of God and afflicted. And then the Holy Spirit took me to this word stricken. I want you to see this word stricken. It comes from the Hebrew word naga. Naga. Naga is made from three Hebrew letters. You have reading from right to left, the letter nun. In the middle, gamel. And on the end, ayin. Nun, gamel, ayin. In the Hebrew, their numbers are encoded into their letters. They have no separate number system. And inside their letters, they have pictures. Every single letter has a picture that's associated with that Hebrew letter. And there's definitions and expressions. It's a very complex language. 
but it's a very awesome language. It's no wonder God had the Old Testament written in Hebrew. It's a very, very beautiful language. The letter Nun literally means the righteous one or the faithful one. The letter Gamel means one who gives his rich life to the poor. And Ayin means the spiritual light of God. We know the spiritual light of God is Christ, don't we? We have the death of Jesus in this scripture. And that's where he was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Every time I clock in at work, we have like these little credit cards you pick up, and you scan it through the time machine, and when you scan it, it reads right out on the screen there, it says, punch, accepted. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was bearing our sin, our shame, our sickness, and our sorrow. On that old rugged cross hung our Savior bearing our punch so that we could be accepted in the Beloved, so that the righteous one or the faithful one, the one who gives his rich life to the poor, could give us the spiritual light of God. This spiritual light is Jesus. He is the light of the world. His grace was dispensed to us, giving us resurrection life, the crown of the I Ams. Friends, there's a message in that when Jesus was stricken. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, the very next scripture, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Not your stripes, his stripes. With his stripes we are healed. What awesome love. Friends, it's a love worth finding. It's a love worth embracing. It's a love worth chasing after. It's a love worth knowing. Awesome love. The Apostle Paul was writing a book to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, he says this. It is a trustworthy statement, Timothy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. Not only have we been crucified with him, we have also died with him. Is it plain? We died with him. In Romans chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, we find these words. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into the death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. We were crucified with him, we died with him, and we were buried with him. I guess all that leaves left is the resurrection, to be resurrected in him. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him. Look at those words. Risen with him. We were crucified with him, we died with him, we were buried with him, and we were risen in him through the faith. Notice it says through the faith, the faith that God has measured unto every single man. That's how we get risen in Christ. That's how we get crucified with Christ. We put our faith in a loving Savior. I want you to quickly see the other I am declarations that Jesus spoke of. Remember, I said the one we were on is, I believe, the jewel of the I am declarations. But in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. 
In Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Or he's saying, he'll find rest. In John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. One of my favorites, John chapter 8, and verse 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In John chapter 15 and verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. In Acts chapter 9, verse 5, this is the exchange with a man by the name of Saul on the road of Damascus. And he's heading to persecute Christians and kill Christians for their faith. And suddenly this bright light appears and it knocks him to the ground. And he hears this voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's interesting that Saul would say, who are you, Lord? But Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Another wonderful I am. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus said, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Friends, I want to tell you something. The I am proclamation that this message was birthed out of comes out of John chapter 11 and verse 25, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. I intentionally saved I am the resurrection and the life as the last declaration because the ownership of every one of those I am declarations that I just read are hinged upon the glorious truth that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Without Jesus' resurrection, life, there would be no bread to eat, and there would be no wine to drink. Without Jesus' resurrection life, there would be no door to walk through. Without Jesus' resurrection life, there'd be no good shepherd to lay us down in green pastures and to lead us beside still waters. Without Jesus' resurrection life, there would be no light of the world to strip away the darkness of sin. Without Jesus' resurrection life, there'd be no true vine to connect us like an umbilical cord to his Father way he came, you know, to connect us back to the Father. Without Jesus' resurrection life, there'd be no way for you and I to pass from our own death into the glory of heaven. Without Jesus' resurrection life, there'd be no truth that settles our heart in quietness and trust. Without Jesus' resurrection life, there'd be no eternal life that leads to daddy. And that's why he came. He came to show us his Father. He came to show us daddy. Oh, I watched my boys do that several times over the year. A lot of kids do that. Many kids will do that. Most of them will do that. They're so proud of their daddy, they want to take other little boys and say, this is my daddy. I remember the time when I went on a field trip with my little son Tanner when he was about five or six. I think I was the only father there. There were a few other mothers. and We went through this little nature walk out in the woods and stuff like that. And Tanner told one of his little buddies, he said, that's my daddy. 
That's my daddy. That's my daddy right there. And as I was holding Tanner's hand, it wasn't long, I felt something tug on my other hand. And it was the other little boy on the side of me because he had presented me in a way that said, this is my daddy. My daddy's a good daddy. And that's what Jesus came to do, is to say, my daddy is a good daddy. You can strip away all that religion, all that stuff that you were taught growing up in the church under this message that daddy's going to get you if you've done something wrong. Your daddy is not going to get you. Your daddy's going to love you. And so it felt kind of awkward because I had one little boy here and one little boy here, but we just walked along and we just enjoyed the little nature trip. And I, you know what? I'm not sure. I'm not 100% positive, but I think if this little boy would have let go of my hand, I think there would have been another one that was waiting in line, stalking me to get my hand. Without Jesus' resurrection life, there would be no root, no offspring of David, and no bright and morning star. Listen to me carefully to these two words, for us. It wouldn't have changed the fact that he was in heaven as the door. It wouldn't change the fact that he was the bread of life in heaven. It wouldn't have changed the fact that he was the good shepherd, but he wouldn't have been our good shepherd. He wouldn't have been our door. He wouldn't have been our way. He wouldn't have been our truth. He wouldn't have been our life if it wouldn't have been for his resurrection life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 19 through 22, we find these words. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or have died, he's saying there. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. The Apostle Paul has to address this because he's been preaching this message of daddy's love and daddy's grace. And he just knows. He just goes right ahead of us. He knows you're going to take it out of context. And he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, he says. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. What kind of life is he talking about? He's talking about a resurrection life. He's talking about a resurrection life that we can live that kind of life now. Not when we just get to heaven. Now we were crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, died with Christ so that we can live a resurrected life now. When Jesus stood out in front of Lazarus' tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth, he wasn't just talking to Lazarus. He was talking to you and he was talking to me. It took Jesus to give him life. Nobody around there gave him life. It took Jesus to give him life. But once he came out of the tomb, he must have looked like a mummy. I mean, he was all wrapped up. Jesus said to the people that were standing there, remove his grave clothes. Loose him and let him go. Our ministry of grace and our ministry of daddy's unconditional love is to keep taking grave clothes off of you. Grave clothes of condemnation. Grave clothes of guilt. <laughs> grave clothes of shame. Grave clothes of fear. Grave clothes. And every time you hear about daddy's goodness, you know what it does? It peels away grave clothes. And so that's what the body of Christ, the ministers, are supposed to be doing out here is taking grave clothes off of resurrected people. 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of our Father, we too may live a new life, a resurrected life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And he uses those words again, for we know. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now when it uses that word sin there, that word sin there is a noun. It's talking about the person of sin. It doesn't mean, it's not the verb, it's not the action. Because then we would go, wait a minute now. See, we still mess up from time to time. But he's saying the person of sin has been set free. Jesus' resurrection life sets us free from the province of sin, the power of sin, and the penalty of sin. We see that province of sin that we've been set free from in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. You know what a dominion is? It's a territory. It's a province. He has rescued us from the province, the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Jesus' resurrected life delivers us from the power of sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. We know. I love how they keep saying we know. He's so confident. We use guess and I think and I imagine and he keeps saying, we know. We can have this confidence, is what he's saying. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ. Oh, then he uses those words, so that. So that sin might lose its power in our life. That sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Well, I'm probably the only one in here doing Jack Lane jumping jacks in my heart right now, but they're going on right now. I want to tell you something. It's lost its power on me. No matter what it thinks it can do, it has no power over me. It has no province over me. It can't pull me back into its territory. I don't belong in that kingdom. I've been translated into another kingdom, and it's the kingdom of grace, and it belongs to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrected life delivers us from the penalty of sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and verse 24. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, you know what that is? That's grace. Undeserved kindness is grace. And yet God, it says, with undeserved kindness declares, we are righteous. That means we are right with Daddy. We have been made right with Daddy. We are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty for our sins. Honey, did you know he freed us from the penalty of our sins? I'm sorry I haven't looked at you yet, but he freed us from the penalty of our sins. I'm going to be running around our house like a crazy man saying I'm no longer in the province, the power, and the penalty of sin. I'm no longer under. That's condemnation. I've been translated out of condemnation and put into his glorious grace. Romans chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. For if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count. It's an accounting term. 
count yourself, just like you sit down and balance a checkbook and wanting everything to line up right. He says, count yourselves dead to sin. In other words, what he's saying there, he's saying, say the same thing I'm saying. I said you're dead to sin. Don't you walk around saying you're not. That's not being counting yourself dead to sin. So what we're essentially instructed to do here is God is saying, would you just say the exact same thing that I'm saying? We got to have agreement. You know, I won't love you any less. You'll still come to heaven, but you're going to walk through this world carrying a weight if there's no agreement. Did you ever notice when there's agreement, everything is just so easy? I watched a show yesterday. I don't get much time to watch TV, but I like watching Restaurant Impossible once in a while. I love seeing transformations, whether God does something in someone's heart or Robert Irvine does it in a restaurant. But he landed on this restaurant that was really, that had a heyday at one time, and then all of a sudden, people quit coming. The man that owns the restaurant's a pastor. Plus, he's a head chef of a country club. And now he's trying to run his own restaurant. And he and his wife of 18 years are just at each other. And Robert Irvine comes walking into the restaurant. Robert Irvine's got some guns on him, doesn't he? And he walks into that restaurant, and he looks around, and he said, this is the worst restaurant I've ever stepped in in my life. I've never seen anything so filthy in all my life. No wonder people aren't coming. He told them the way it was. And that pastor man lost it for a second. And, he, and even on camera, he said, you are not going to disrespect me. Turn those cameras off. Turn those cameras off. You are not coming over here and disrespecting me. And man, he was just in Robert Irvine's business. And Robert Irvine's just standing there. The husband and wife cannot get along. There's total disharmony, disagreement. They almost can't stand each other. And what he has an act of doing, it's almost like he has an anointing to do this, not just go in and fix failing restaurants, but find out what is the culprit? What is the problem here? And the problem wasn't just the food. The food was awesome. It wasn't just the uncleanliness of the restaurant, but it was the fact that the husband and wife were not in agreement. He found out the man could sing, and he found out she could sing. In fact, she had did a jingle for their restaurant about eating greens and, and all that other southern food. Anyway... <laughs> It, so she had done this jingle. He's like, oh, you can really sing. Okay. She said, well, you should hear him sing. He can really sing. And so they opened up and both of them in the kitchen there in acapella were singing this song. And Robert Irvine said, hmm, I got an idea. I'm going to take you to a recording studio. I'm going to take you to a recording studio. And you're going to look at each other and you're going to share one microphone as you sing passionately to the Lord and to one another. And I want to tell you something. When they came into agreement like that, it changed everything. It changed everything. Oh, you couldn't have believed the transformation at the end. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying when he's saying, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's saying, say the same thing that I'm saying. Be in agreement with me because there's going to be power that's going to be released. My final descent is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. What is the gospel? It's the gospel of Christ. It's the grace of Christ. He said that I preach to you which you receive and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, by this gospel, the gospel of grace, you are saved. And then he says, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. In other words, he's not saying you can lose it if you don't hold on to it. But what he was saying to the people, he was saying, listen, I've come along and I've told you about the gospel of Christ. If you decide to go over here and drink this religious Kool-Aid over here and just be religious, you are not holding firmly to the gospel that I have taught you. And you cannot be saved apart from Christ. He says, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received... 
I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of them who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the other apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And then he says these awesome words. For I am the least. I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But then he says, but, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Don't you ever think that you're anything apart from his grace. If the apostle Paul didn't think it so, we better not think it so either. Everything I am, I'm going to tell you something right now. I am what I am because of his grace. I take no credit for it. It was grace. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, he said, I work harder than all. In other words, he said, you know, when I received this message of grace, when Jesus taught it to me personally, I didn't say, let's just throw a party and take life off. He said, I worked hard. I worked hard is what he said. I worked harder than all of them, he said. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. All my hard work was undergirded and married with grace. By the grace of God, we have been crucified with Christ. By the grace of God, we have died with Christ. By the grace of God, we have been buried with Christ. And by the grace of God, we walk in resurrection life, the newness of life. It's resurrection life, the crown of the I Ams in Jesus' name. And Father, I want to thank you. We seal this word as we enter into communion, Daddy, with such confidence that we don't have to inspect ourselves. Jesus has already been inspected. He is our lamb. He is our sacrifice. And I want to thank you, Father, that every time you look at your son, you find him worthy. And because you've placed us inside the body of Christ, and inside the spirit of Christ, you see us exactly the same way. You counted us dead to our sins and alive to you in Christ Jesus. Father, seal this word in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.